to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. In this special episode of Belaboured, we bring you our best outtakes from the Labor Notes Conference in Chicago. In addition to our main panel on organizing outside the law, which you can catch in the previous episode, number 148, we also collected some great insights from labor activists across the U.S. and beyond. Here are some voices from the sidelines of the event. I spoke with International Director of the Korean Federation of Trade Unions, Mik Young Ryu, about her view of the Korean labor movement, where it stands in peninsular relations and international relations, and what to do about free trade deals and the power of Samsung. There was uh, some political turmoil uh, during the, the last couple of years. There was a big protest against the corrupt anti-democracy and anti-labor government and at the end of the protest the government was ousted and uh, we have a new government at this moment. So uh, uh, for the trade union movement um, under the last government it was very hard to continue the struggle and union activity and uh, whenever we stage a uh, protest or a strike uh, against uh, the rigorous labor reform or other anti-democratic policy, we face harsh uh, repression from the government, including the arrests of the union leaders and jail in union leaders and mass dismissal, especially uh, targeted uh, to the trade union leaders. But we continue the protests and we join a broader social movement. But now we have a, some, a new situation. The new government is identifying itself as a democratic government or government which is successing the candlelight uh, struggle. And uh, the government is promising uh, a lot of things. They uh, raised a lot of uh, reform issues. But uh, we found that the new government is lacking uh, their uh, concrete policy to protect the fundamental labor rights, uh, meaning the trade union rights for all workers. And we believe that there are lots of problems in Korean society, including the working conditions, especially the Korean economy has developed due to the low wages and uh, harsh working conditions and low working hour and recently there are lots of precarious workers so this contribute to strengthen the social polarization or gap between the rich and poor especially uh, among the workers so to solve this problem we believe that we uh, need a strong union and uh, to build a strong union we have to change the legal system and uh, the practice, which is very anti-union, and the Korean economy uh, is dominated by the big conglomerates, and these are taking a lot of uh, profits, but they have never respected the trade union rights, especially Samsung is notorious for its non-union policy, and they are uh, dominating uh, whole uh, the, the economy domestically and internationally. So we, to guarantee uh, for the fundamental labor rights, we have to fight with these uh, conglomerates as well. So now we are uh, continuing our struggle to change the society uh, as a nation 
where uh, the workers can exercise their trade union rights without any fear. Talk about specific campaigns you're working on, especially um, I know that when Moon came into office, there was a lot of hope of maybe prosecutions uh, of, of Samsung executives yeah. and uh, some change in that company or at least a breaking of their power. Um, but so far, it doesn't seem like that has necessarily come to fruition. So what do we do now? Do you find it easier to organize under Moon or maybe even more challenging in some ways because some people thought that once we elect him, maybe, you know, our problems will be solved? Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. So the situation is very complicated. But I have to tell you this. Two days ago, the former president was convicted and sentenced uh, with 24 years yeah. jail terms. But uh, the court found that Samsung, which uh, was involved in the corruption and bribery issue, was not guilty, actually. It's very ironical that the court said that former president who received the bribe from Samsung is guilty, but Samsung who gave the bribe is not guilty. So it's very weird, but it shows that how big Samsung's power in Korean society. So that's why they can ignore the constitutional right for the workers. And I, I think many people cannot imagine that this uh, transnational and very famous transnational company in the world uh, can ignore, uh, totally ignore the constitutional rights and uh, international labor standards in uh, any place where they are operating. So even though the government saying that they will build the nation respect labor, uh, we believe that it is impossible if we cannot control the Samsung's power and we can, uh, if we cannot tackle uh, the Samsung's uh, non-union policy, it is not possible for us to build the nation uh, respect labor. So this moment, even though we have a new government, it's still uh, we have to still fight and yeah, that's why we are uh, continuing the struggle. So how do you break Samsung's power if they have no unions and politicians are not responding to you. How do you organize those workers? Actually, we had very good and successful uh, experience uh, organized uh, workers who are working for Samsung. Actually, it was almost impossible, but it is not impossible at all. When we try to organize the workers uh, who are working for Samsung, the workers who are repairing Samsung goods, smartphone and air conditioner or refrigerator, they are working for Samsung, but they are not hired by Samsung. So we put a lot of efforts and a lot of financial resources and a lot of organizers uh, to organize these uh, workers. And they, these workers also went on their collective action to achieve uh, bargaining with Samsung's representative. And in the post, there are uh, harsh repression and two of trade union officials died under the very heavy uh, repression. But finally, they organized themselves and they achieved a collective bargaining agreement. And now uh, we are trying to sharing this uh, successful experience with other workers who are working for Samsung or working in Samsung not only in Korea, but also uh, other countries, especially in Southeast Asia. So we are doing, uh, uh, taking a very small step uh, to organize Samsung workers. And we believe that we can uh, finally uh, have a union plan in Samsung. 
And because of their historical ties between um, the labor movement and the pro-democracy movement, as well as the anti-militarism movement, um, where do you see yourselves at this moment internationally? You talked about how Samsung is an international employer. When we think about Korea and international relations, everyone just thinks about North Korea and no one thinks about the corporate power that is also very global uh, coming from Korea. We just renewed a free trade agreement with Korea and the U.S., and barely anyone noticed, it seems, here in the U.S. How do you bring the workers' perspective back into this? Actually, uh, we have a very long history of separation between North and South, and actually this is very complicated. There are lots of um, different ideas yeah. within Within the, the KCTU, yeah. so I cannot represent any one yeah, single yeah, yeah. position. Sure. But in general, historically, Korean uh, labor movement uh, is uh, always a core part of the broader social movement for democracy and uh, peace and reunification. And the tra trade union movement is always involved in uh, broader uh, social movements, and they always uh, are working together with other. Uh, social sectors like peasants and uh, students and urban poor and blah blah blah. So uh, it is not uh, very difficult uh, for uh, the trade union to organize workers with uh, issues which is not directly uh, related to the, the working conditions or the issues within the workplaces. So we are always a part of the social movements and uh, at this moment uh, KCTU and uh, trade union uh, movements uh, is also part of the uh, social movement for peace. And now we are facing a very new uh, circumstance, the dialogue between uh, the North and South and dialogue between the North Korea and the US uh, is uh, scheduled. Uh, it, it will happen uh, within uh, month or one, there will be a, a chance to uh, change the situation dramatically to bring the permanent peace system within uh, Korean Peninsula and to make it possible. I believe that we uh, have to strengthen the voices uh, from the workers saying that we, 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 we don't want any war anymore and we, we want peace in Korea and uh, Korean Peninsula and the East Asia. And we have to strengthen the uh, international solidarity with the uh, uh, trade union movement in other countries, especially in the U.S., to uh, make it uh, Samsung is one of the largest corporate employers in the world. It's now operating on basically almost every continent. So um, what, what do you say to the workers who are working for Samsung in Latin America or in the U.S.? Um, or in Vietnam, or in China right now, um, they have no idea that maybe there's a labor movement in Korea that is also trying to organize Samsung. We know what Samsung is doing when they operating in other countries. And sometimes when I met some uh, workers or trade union activists in other countries, they said that they cannot believe uh, this superpower and the big global employer can survive without uh, re respect to the domestic law and the international labor standards. So the Korean trade union movement 
have uh, a lot of experiences uh, with uh, union busting strategy of Samsung. We, we don't have uh, a lot of uh, successful experience to organize Samsung workers domestically, but we have a lot of experience uh, how Samsung is blocking uh, establishing trade union. So I believe that one of our tasks is make Samsung be responsible for the workers in their production network and the global supply chain as a real employer of uh, the workers. And to build solidarity, I, I believe that we can start uh, by sharing uh, our experience and uh, sharing our strategy, how we can defeat Samsung and organize workers who are working in or who are working for Samsung. And by organizing the union, uh, we can find uh, uh, more things to do together with uh, other uh, the trade union movement in is it easy to organize a labor union and it, do you need a majority vote? To... Uh, no, it's not that. Uh, we are legally, it's very simple. We need only two members to establish a union. But yeah, you can imagine that we cannot do anything with only two members in the factory. So we uh, try to organize uh, uh, the majority of them. But apart from this law, uh, we have uh, a lot of precarious workers and in different types, for example. And uh, these, but in uh, practice, in reality, uh, apart from this law, it's very difficult to, to organize workers uh, because it is said that more than half of the whole working uh, population is precarious workers and their employment is very uh, insecure and uh, it's very dangerous for the workers uh, to join a union, they have to take the risk of the dismissal and other forms of discipline. Uh, so, and in uh, some cases, some kinds of precarious workers are not recognized as worker, so they cannot cover any uh, legal practice, including trade union law, so they cannot join any service union. And other uh, more serious problem is. Uh, apart from law, the law is very simple and it's not like the, the, the law in the US, but in practice it's very difficult to organize. That's why the union density in Korea is only 10%. That was Mi Hyung Ryu, International Director of the Korean Federation of Trade Unions, speaking with me at the Labor Notes Conference of 2018. Shireen Alamzadeh is co-founder and co-director of Healing to Action. It's a community-based labor initiative that works with the labor movement to raise awareness of gender justice issues and to mobilize against gender-based violence in the workplace. One of the strategies that we use is partnering with the labor movement to develop survivor-centered strategies and campaigns that are able to create space for survivors of gender-based violence to actually lead the labor movement and make the labor movement accessible. Um, and also to tap into the existing worker power, to the existing campaigns for economic equality, for um, workplace justice, all of which are key causes of gender-based violence and why it's happening at really high rates, particularly in really low income communities. Have you seen an appreciable difference between um, organizing within unionized workplaces um, and uh, non-unionized sectors? 
And to what degree do you think that unions can and should be doing more in those workplaces where they are active? We see this happen across industries and workplaces, union and non-union. And a lot of people in unionized workplaces have shared, you know, that they feel that their union could be doing more on the issue or that it's not an issue that their union is necessarily equipped to handle right now. We do see a lot of potential in the union partners that we're starting to develop in trying to figure out ways to leverage the power that the union has and the community that the union is building. So part of what we're trying to do is find unions that really do want to lead on this issue um, and create a model for the labor movement to think about how you can tap into your membership base, um, figure out ways to learn and create accessibility for survivors within your organization to share their stories, and then how you can help to cultivate their leadership so that they can start to develop strategies or campaigns that the entire union can get behind to try to really shift the power dynamics or the other inequalities that are causing sexual violence to happen in that industry. Mm-hmm. As for the labor movement itself, do you feel that um, it is there's sufficient enough um, attention paid to this in terms of the culture of the movement? And to what degree is like representation in union leadership and and just you know in terms of numbers? I mean, um, there are many unions that that obviously have uh, very female-dominated uh, leaderships, as well as um, ones where there's a female-dominated workforce and a male-dominated leadership, and all sorts of different configurations of, of gender dynamics there. So, uh, to what degree does that make a difference? And is is uh, cultivating leadership within unions to make sure that women's voices are heard? The issues around gender inequality like and gender-based violence and um, misogyny are deeply rooted in our culture, and, the, and our social justice movements are no exception. Um, and it's really, it's really hard to have that discussion, especially in, in the labor movement and other movements like racial justice movement, where we're, we're fighting for these really important rights. Um, but we have to also recognize the ways that inequality exists within our movements, and we might not be doing everything that we can to address it. And that's not exclusive to the labor movement. Um, but it's part of a broader culture that the labor movement is a part of. And so in terms of building leadership um, within the, the union infrastructure, it's it's very, you know, it's very clear um, that the big, really exciting campaigns that um, have been coming out of different cities around sexual violence have a really strong female leadership supporting them and um, moving them. And so, you know, I think that is, that's an obvious trend that you can see in the, in the campaigns that we're seeing that are making a really transformative impact. But I also think there's definitely a role for men who are in positions of power and unions to both make space for survivors and women more broadly um, to lead and share their stories and use that power that they have from surviving the violence or from having those experiences and really tap into that as a quality that's that's actually going to strengthen the labor movement build the membership base, you know, strengthen, like, we know the labor movement is under attack in so many different ways. We really want to think about how can we broaden the power base, how can we make it a movement that is meaningful to more people. Um, So these are things that I think that people in power, men or women, can really be looking to do Mm -hmm. um, as leaders. Mm -hmm. And for people who um, are in a position where they can influence a, a collective bargaining negotiation or have these types of 
um, issues tackled within a contract? Are there ideas that you've been able to work into collective bargaining that, that makes sense for addressing some of this on a more systemic level? I mean, beyond sort of like the perfunctory trainings and things right. like that. Right. Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's a very um, emergent topic. Uh, we haven't worked directly on collective bargaining agreements um, as an organization. We certainly know that some of our union partners have integrated language into the contracts, um, have integrated language into legislation, you know, local or state legislation that would then apply to employers that their um, members work for. But that is a very nascent part of the work that is happening, and part of that is because it's just this issue is just starting to be seen as a labor issue that the union can actually get behind and, and use its power to push. Um, and so I think one of the main things we really want to emphasize as, as in our organization is it's really important that when you start to think about those strategic fixes that you are listening to survivors because sometimes there's like a great idea that sounds really wonderful um, but doesn't align at all with the reality or the priorities that survivors have and the way that they're looking at sexual violence in their workplace and then what you see is like there's some sort of protection there it's not being used or it's not effective and when it's not effective that can really undermine the trust that um, survivors and other people in the labor movement have that their union can really advocate for them and make a meaningful impact on the issue yeah yeah and we certainly know in a lot of these contracts there's no shortage of good things that look good on paper and yet it, it really comes down to practice right um, you know there are all sorts of different elaborate grievance procedures that you could access but you know if the, if the culture isn't there to support it exactly Right. <laughs> and so, yeah, we really encourage unions to start by looking at how they can do culture shift and start to have that conversation more openly and create a space where survivors can say this is what we need and really feel safe and comfortable in saying that. And those are the types of initiatives we really want to support. Right, right. That was Shireen Alamzadeh, co-founder and co-director of Healing to Action. Here's Ligaya Lindio McGovern. She is professor of sociology at Indiana University Kokomo and a global human and labor rights advocate. She discussed the importance of the migrant diaspora in labor organizing for global justice and what the Asian and Asian American communities can do to advance both migrant rights and domestic labor rights at home for women. In the labor sector, they can play a very important role in aligning, building alliances with labor unions uh, here and in the place where they are uh, based. Because, for example, to look at the labor laws there, for example, when I was in Taiwan, uh, the labor, the migrant workers could not organize separately as unions, and they cannot uh, take leadership positions in unions. So they, so here and 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 also here in the U.S., they're pitting. You know, the scapegoating of migrants is very important to uh, to tackle. And then this kind of uh, thinking that scapegoating migrants that they are the <laughs> the source of unemployment and. Uh, crisis, economic crisis. It's very important. And so education, educational campaign and organizing and aligning with labor unions, established labor unions here would be very important. And also to come up with separate organizations uh, that can then 
be in alliance with organized labor. Very important. And we have not given enough importance to organizing migrant workers, especially if they are temporary workers. By the way, there are also now like temporary workers, guest workers that's being uh, done here. Uh, like they're considered trainees uh, and or interns and they are actually used and Philippines, the US, these are independent corporations using, okay, we'll give you trainees like in restaurant, we'll, we, they will have the status of trainees, but actually they're doing actual labor. And then because, uh, and so they can make them cheap, no, and it's temporary, no prince benefits, and that is being done uh, recurringly. So after the six-month training, let's say, and then uh, given certificate, then they are sent out, then another batch. So it's still a semblance of contractualization <laughs> here, but in the name of trainees and educational training. So these are very important issues. Migrant domestic workers here, very important, especially the undocumented. They are very powerless. They're very afraid to come up. And we are we're trying to organize domestic workers. They just don't want, they just don't want. So how do you give them voice? Because they cannot get out. They cannot uh, organize in the open. So again, labor policies here, uh, really can be influenced uh, by both by local workers and, and that the notion that wages of migrant workers and wages of local workers they think you know this is populist populism and local workers here think that migrant workers are taking their jobs uh, but actually we need to begin thinking to, to uh, remove that kind of uh, thinking that if there is migration and paying them wages, it is supposed, the, the goal is to make labor as cheap as possible for all, including local labor. Because once you have this class of people, you know, a disposable working class, you can make labor cheap as possible. They are not enemies, they are supposedly coming together in solidarity and the enemy is this. Cap local capitalism here and of course uh, global capitalism and labor export that is the purpose of labor export why these labor importing countries welcome that domestic work in all kinds of labor Canada Canada now has a policy on uh, import labor and it is legislated that they will be given lower wages and not only that, but um, uh, embedded within these migration policies and these selective visas that we have right. coming in, there's very little uh, in the way of anti-discrimination policy, right. So in a way, we have uh, perhaps civil rights policies in right. the U.S. Right. 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 The additional element of the border. Right. Right. Because right. the border is used. Right as a deliberate tool right. for filtering right. people. Yes. Um, but at the same time, I think also what you, you said about um, 
labor export being a system yes. that is larger than the workforce itself. Right, right. You see now some Filipino workers saying that this whole system is broken and that right. we should not be pressured to have to leave the country right. in order to make a decent living. And right. so in that sense, personal choice and sovereignty right. is also key. Right. Um, at the same time, the best jobs that many Filipino workers can hope for at home is perhaps in a call center, right? right? Which is also right. another source of labor uh, outsourcing. Right. outsourcing. You know, so they have I, to see all like, these interconnections. Yeah. The labor movement has to see these all interconnections. And they're not just to fight for wages, but do something <laughs> to change the, the capitalist nature. Of, of the economy. And of course, um, the more labor you're exporting, the weaker your right. workforce is at home right. because you cannot build up. Right. To the extent that nationalism is at all useful, right. I mean, you, right. you are essentially depopulating your yes. country, right, by right. sending its workers abroad. And, and by the way, don't you think that the Asian workers here need to be strengthened? They are very invisible. They are, in fact, to be more visible in, in this struggle. Uh, the Filipino Americans, having been in this country for so long, right. are actually uh, farther ahead than many mm -hmm. other Asian American diasporas. Right. Since Chinese right. Americans came yes. later, Korean right. Americans came later, Filipinos have been here right. since they were a colony. Right. 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 So, now, in our organizing, we also see the need for, let's say, Filipinos here to understand the mother what's going on in the Philippines so let's say even if you were born here or you transferred here because some do not are not anymore connected and then the understanding of the, what's going on uh, we 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 struggle to let them see the connection why are you here conditions your conditions of discrimination it's linked to this broader especially uh, so looking back again their historical experience and how that's being continued today uh, is very important and then again you know uh, we need to create more of this uh, educational campaign in homes or uh, sharing of so we, we we try in our organizing we try to get as many sectors from different sectors, uh, not the working class, but also we use people's skills, you know, all sectors, because uh, we need that. We need that here. And research is very important if we want to have educational campaigns. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So this Asian American studies, for example, it's important to also Asians and Asian American studies. That's why in the American Sociological Asia, we have a committee, a research group, say, Asian and Asian Americans. Um, because some do not want to call themselves Asian Americans. That we need to understand what's going on in their countries of origin. Yeah, yeah. And how is that linked to what's going on here? That was sociologist and global human rights advocate specializing in the Filipino diaspora, Lagaya Lindio McGovern. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org.
Recently, we covered the St. Paul Federation of Teachers fight for fair funding for their schools in their new contract campaign. At Labor Notes, I spoke with Beth Swanberg, a St. Paul, Minnesota teacher, about the contract fight and what they've won and what has changed now. Where do you teach? What do you I teach? teach choir and musical theater at Highland Park Middle School oh, in St. Paul. We're having an interesting moment with theater students in the national spotlight right yeah. now. So um, yeah. that's great. I am, I am pleased. So it's been how many weeks since the almost strike and the, the oh, contract? I don't know weeks, how right? many weeks. It feels like a lifetime, but it's, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so I wanted to ask about what it's been like since. What, um, what has changed? What hasn't changed? What have you noticed? Well, I think it's interesting because the immediate aftermath was sort of it was almost like the, speaking of theater students, it was almost like the come down after a performance. Uh-huh. Where you have this sort of a little bit of like post-performance depression where you're like, now what do I do? Like, yeah. we, we, we won, you know, right. in quotes. Um, but uh, then after that, it was, uh, it's been great to see other members that were not as involved start mm-hmm. really asking some important questions yeah. and even knowing what kind of questions to ask. Yeah. So yeah. I would say that's sort of the immediate... Um, the ratification of the contract had, um, as you might guess, some mixed reactions. There were some people who were hoping we had gone for more and some people that were really happy that we didn't. So um, so it's a mixed bag. Yeah, yeah. I am. And then the next week, West Virginia happens, and now teachers all over the country. So, like, how does that feel as having been in this union that's been pretty militant and been fighting for pretty good contracts for the last several years? How does it feel to look at this landscape now? Well, it's really exciting. Um, And I think just seeing the the solidarity. Um, I have colleagues who you'll hopefully run into later on this weekend um, who just came from Oklahoma, just went out there. They're like, they took their spring break to go out there and and support Oklahoma teachers. And um, so uh, it's it's beautiful to see so many people. Um, It's also disconcerting because you can't help but compare yourselves. Mm -hmm. And um, we definitely see... We definitely see what the strength of a long time, really grassroots union mm-hmm. can do in terms of contracts compared to those yeah. of our um, colleagues who don't have that. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, so, have people, more people, been getting involved because of that? Are there people who are then coming to, you know, wanting to get more involved in, in St. Paul because of what they're seeing yeah. nationally? Yeah, I, th- I think absolutely, and not just nationally on the education front, but nationally mm-hmm. in the entire political climate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we have nine seats for our executive board mm-hmm. that are open um, for our election coming up next in the next few months, mm-hmm. and there are twenty-two people running, and I think that's more than ever. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So, what are next steps in sort of the revenue part of the the struggle? So um, the St. Paul Federation of, Federation of Teachers has um, about a year ago organized a group of people um, called the Tiger Team, and um, the mission of the Tiger Team is to really to educate, um, as you might guess, when, since we're all a bunch of teachers, um, but not just teachers, the community, um, a lot of parents and other community members as well and to educate them on how schools are funded in Minnesota and to educate them on the decline in funding over the past 30 to 50 years 
and then to look at some other options. So right now the Tiger team is um, looking at pilots in the city of St. Paul. Mm -hmm. We're looking at TIFs in the city of St. Paul, mm -hmm. corporate um, taxes and, and how that all has, um, yeah. or has, has affected our public education system. Yeah, and the, the Super Bowl was such an interesting sort of part of the whole thing, right? That that provided an interesting, like, leverage point. Yeah. Um, we had members of our Tiger team actually at a couple of different um, protests surrounding the Super Bowl. Um, the, there was a very... Um, there was a very interesting legacy fund. Um, their motto was, it's for the kids. Yeah. And, um, you know, it amounted to... A couple hundred thousand dollars worth of something that we didn't really need, right? Um, and so, there we were able to bring some attention to that as well, and yeah. and uh, I think that was good for the community to see. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, one of the things that y'all have had in contracts for a couple of years now is the restorative practices in schools. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? I can talk a little bit about yeah. it. I'm not um, at a restorative practice school. Uh -huh. um, I know that. Uh, we really believe as a union, and I, th and I think um, as a union leadership as well as membership, that the only way for us to uh, really address in a fair way the discipline issues and the racial inequality is through restorative practices and finding a way for um, our students as well as our staffs to, to really talk about what's what's going on in the world and what it's like to be a person of color and um, what it's like to be in a community that's as diverse as St. Paul is, for example, um, is through restorative practices. So um, we're, you know, the, the program is expanding, um, not at the rate we wish it were, but it is, you know, it's, it's growing, it's moving forward and growing. That's great. Um, what else should people know about the union, the, the changes in the you know last several contract struggles. I think the biggest one is that uh, in our most recent contract, we won language around partnering with the school board um, to go and at least explore these corporate um, interests in the state and explore these um, nonprofits that are yeah. operating more like a corporation than a nonprofit, and to see how we can spread out the cost, the inevitable high cost of really quality public education, yeah. um, spread that out and have make sure that uh, more people are paying their fair share for it. And the fact that we have language that the school board, um, and the board of our, our school district and our school board agreed to explore that is, um, is really important. And the next few months we'll see what that really means. We'll be yeah. meeting with our superintendent around those issues in the next couple of weeks, actually. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, you have, on the one hand, in, you know, St. Paul, you have a Democratic administration and you have a, you know, union that's been pretty powerful and pretty well organized for several years. And then, in, you know, places like West Virginia, you're seeing these things growing up much faster. Um, and then um, in that, in both places, though, you're fighting against austerity. You're still fighting for more funding for schools. You're still fighting for more investment in these. Well, and we're fighting against the myth that the money isn't there. Yeah. You know, yeah. The money is there. It's just not going to kids of color. It's not going to those neighborhoods where we have um, high poverty and a high number of people of color. 
it's um, it's going into the pockets of the very very wealthy Minnesotans. And so last question, because I have an arts teacher here, talk about why it's important to fight for arts funding in the schools. So I've been teaching in the public schools for the better part of 30 years, and I cannot tell you how many times I've gone to a staff meeting and or some sort of a meeting with my colleagues, and they talk about a kid who just is out of control, and they cannot reach that kid. And I'm like, really? Yeah. Because that kid comes to my classroom, and they're super on task all the time, and really polite, and right there, and engaged, and and that's that's where the arts the arts reaches kids that nobody else can reach, and that trickles into the rest of their school lives. That was Beth Swanberg, teacher from St. Paul, Minnesota. Speaking of teachers, in Puerto Rico, the teachers have been fighting first to reopen their schools after they were devastated by Hurricane Maria, and then to stave off a New Orleans-style privatization attempt. Mercedes Martinez of the Federación de Maestros de Puerto Rico and Liza Fournier of UNITE, both teachers' unions, are here with me to talk about their fight, their strike, and their upcoming, possibly more strikes, against privatization. Uh, my name is Liza Fournier. I'm um, a union member from UNETE. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm the secretary of organization for my union, and I live in Ciales, Puerto Rico. I am Mercedes Martinez. I'm the president of the Teachers Federation of Puerto Rico, the FMPR, and happy to be here. Happy to have you here. Um, so, Puerto Rico has been hit with two disasters, right? There's the debt crisis and the promesa and all of that, and then the hurricane. And so take us back to sort of before the hurricane and what were the big issues that you were dealing with before the storm hit? Well, prior to the hurricane, um, as you know, President Barack Obama approved, uh, the Congress approved the promesa law. And people in Puerto Rico were already facing um, a lot of austerity measure tax against their dignifying life. We were exposed to proposals such as pension cuts, um, school closures, thousands of layoffs, uh, cancellation of public agencies. Is the disposal of all the public goods to hand it in into the corporate sector, into the private sector, into the bankers, into that 1% that wants to leave us investors. So before the hurricane, our colonial situation um, allowed the government to approve this law and want, and they wanted from day one for the people of Puerto Rico to pay a $72 billion odious debt that was not created by the workers. And are the wor- and the workers are the ones that are being expected to sacrifice um, their working conditions, their lives, to pay these corporate um, moguls um, their plan to dispose of everything. What were some of the things you get before the hurricane that you were struggling with in your union? Well, before the hurricane, we, we even had schools that were shut down mm-hmm. before the hurricane because it was all part of the system. They want to reduce the system. Um, they want to short the cut money yeah. from schools before the hurricane. So we had how many schools were shut down before the hurricane? Um, 166 schools last year. Last year. Yeah. And before that, there were like 120. 120. And... Uh, Things were pretty bad before the hurricane, right, yeah. you know, and teachers struggling because they were moving teachers from one school to another in the middle of the semester. So it was pretty much bad before, and it got worse <laughs> after the yeah. hurricane. Yeah, and so I know that, like, 
in the immediate aftermath of the hurricane, I've heard stories of teachers, you know, going back in and cleaning the schools up to get them open again, things like that. Can you tell us about like what that was like in that time? Well, right after the hurricane, um, I I'm, I work in a school. I'm yeah. an active teacher, so we can we went back like a week after the hurricane. Schools were completely damaged by trees, trash, structures that fallen down. And so the teachers were the first ones who got a school. Mm-hmm. So we were the one with the machetes, cleaning the schools, taking out all the garbage, um, trying to get fi- schools fixed as soon as possible yeah. to bring students back. But guess what? They didn't let us open our schools. Yeah. My school was ready to be open like two weeks after the year. Mm-hmm. But we opened in November. So my students were two months and a half without going to school, not because we were ready or alpha, it was right. because they didn't let us open. So mainly the teachers and organizations and the community were the ones who really cleaned the schools to reopen. Yeah, and before your school, after the hurricane, teachers, as guys said, were the ones that reconditioned the schools. And chainsawing had a lot of women, 85% of the teachers are female in our country, a lot of mothers. And they were ready to receive their children. Um, every psychologist knows that, and they tell you, after a disaster like the one we had, yeah. five category, a Category 5 hurricane, yeah. you need to come to some type of normalcy again. And the Department of Education was denying our children their rights to education. So it's very important that after the hurricane happened, even though the schools were ready, they denied the schools to open, but school communities that had no light, that had no water, that had no communication, organized themselves. And there were multiple protests in our country, five or six schools per day. The teachers' federation was in a lot of communities organizing the parents and requesting the Secretary of Education to open them. When she denied that after the protests, we performed a civil disobedience activity in her office. Uh, 21 of us got arrested for requesting her to open the schools of our country. And uh, people of Puerto Rico were with us. Um, And after that, she still denied the schools to be open, so we took her to court. And when we started the court case, she had 300 schools that, that was in November that were still closed. For the first hearing, when the judge ordered her to tell us why the schools were still um, closed. When we went to the first hearing, she had already opened 260 schools, leaving only 40 closed. So that the the protest, the civil disobedience, the pickets in front of her of her office, plus the court case, um, in, uh, stopped her from implementing the agenda that she had. While the hurricane, she said that she was going to shut down 200 schools during the hurricane, and the community organization plus all the activities that I mentioned um, stopped her from a lot uh, from from doing that, from converting Puerto Rico into New Orleans of the decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I actually the lived in New Orleans for a while. So yeah, provoked that many students came to the states because they were waiting to go back to school mm-hmm. but one month two months so then that many students came to the states to yeah. study and find better conditions because we had no electricity i got electricity in january yeah. and there's still a lot of people in puerto rico that don't have electricity or water mm-hmm. and then they announced that they want to privatize the schools they announced that they want to privatize it um, since she got there from day one. Yeah. And now they just made it into a law. Right. They passed their approved law 85, March 29th. Um, legislature passed the bill. The 
the teacher unions went to public hearings and we presented, in, in, in behalf of the Federacion, we presented them with a lot of letters from different community organizations from the states that have charter schools, that have voucher programs, telling the legislature, don't vote in favor of this bill because this is what had happened to us in the states. Hundreds of letters. They did not listen. Obviously, they had, this is an agenda and it's to fill the pockets of the ones that have too much that want more. So they just approved the bill into law. We, before, the same day they were voting on it, we, the, the FADEP, which is a teacher alliance of the Federación UNED and other organizations of teachers, uh, perform a one-day strike. 16,000 teachers were absent from their schools. And we organized that. We announced the, the, the strike, the one-day, um, on Wednesday, and it started on Monday. And now that they approved the law and they have just announced last week or two days ago the school closures of 283 schools, we are having a general assembly on the 15th of April. All the FADEP um, organizations, which are the teacher unions, to propose an action plan which definitely will take us back to the streets for a time that we have to until we get justice for the people of Puerto Rico and our children and our workers. And so. You know, it's it's just become almost a cliche now to talk about this, the shock doctrine, right? That the things that they came in wanting to do, they then push through because of the hurricane. But so what is the response from parents, from students? How are they feeling? Are they, you know, I assume they're supporting you and your actions, but tell us what that's been like. We have lots of parents that are supporting us, and they... From, since they know the schools are shutting down, they're calling the different unions, they're calling the studies, they're calling us. There's because they want us to be in their assemblies. They want to help. They want help from us to organize the communities because they want to fight back. They want to. We're talking about schools that are really in, in, in the country. You know that children will have to wake up at five o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. to get ready to go to school, and sometimes come at six at school, and school is open at eight. So the, we're talking about kids from six, seven, eight years mm-hmm. that will have maybe to travel an hour, 45 minutes to get to school. Yeah. So parents are very supportive. They're ready to fight for their schools. And the teachers are going to be standing right next to them because this is the work that we have to do together. So so we are grateful for that. Yeah. So we can't, we can't hardly wait to go back home yeah. to start organizing the communities. We're going to yeah. fight back. Yeah. Um, what's it been like here and connecting with some of the other teachers and their other struggles around the U.S.? Well, when we come here, we know that is the same struggles that we've given in Puerto Rico, not only in the States, but throughout the globe with mm-hmm. teachers yeah, absolutely. Um, in, the, in the entire continent are fighting against this capitalist agenda, this neoliberal agenda that wants to destroy not only public education, but all the public services in our country. The attack is not only on education. They want to privatize schools to implement those charters. They want to give the voucher programs. They want to shut down the schools. They want to fire public employees. We're talking about 100,000 employees that will be fired from different agencies. They want to destroy the University of Puerto Rico, which is a state university, by eliminating campuses. They want to increase the admission fee. They want to increase the cost per credit per course. They want to cut the pensions from 10 to 25 percent to people that have not uh, enough to live. You know, so it's not only an attack on public education. And in hearing labor notes, we have heard the same stories of teachers 
throughout the states and throughout the globe, and we have heard that the same attack against all public sectors. So this is a generalized attack, and it's not even, I don't even think it's the shock doctrine anymore, it's the terror doctrine that they have implemented here. But Puerto Rico is, they, have, they, they want to implement terror, and they want, to, they want you to feel um, that it's not able, mm-hmm. that, it's not, that you're not able to change the way, and, and here, being here, and talking to teachers and listening to the stories. West Virginia, Oklahoma, Arizona, we have a great alliance with more mm-hmm. from New York, yeah. from GLE, yeah. you know, and just listening to them. Mm-hmm. It just renews our energy and it, it let us know that this is one struggle of the working class um, and that we will have small victories till we triumph entirely. So we are not hopeless. We have much hope to go back to our country and give the fight that we have to give. What can people in the mainland U.S. do to support you and to... Yesterday we were talking about that in one of the workshops and all of the teachers were interested um, Mm -hmm. on helping Puerto Rico. So we asked them that they can make videos, they can um, take pictures, send us messages. Maybe we will open another GoFundMe campaign so if we go on a strike so they can help by donating to the GoFundMe campaign. But it's very important, like yesterday they made a video with teachers from like 12 states saying that they're here with Puerto Rico, we support you, and we spread it out in, in Facebook and the teachers were oh my God, I can't believe, this is very great. You know, we feel that we are gonna renew with this. So that's very important that we don't, we know we we know that we're not alone in this. That, but it's very important for the teachers over there in Puerto Rico to know that we have support from them. Yeah, and, and not only support from the teachers. We have been with GLE. We have been working and with other comrades and, and other unions. We have been working with a sisterhood program where you adopt a school from Puerto Rico, but it's not a charity. Mm-hmm. It's a event. It's a solidarity event, mm-hmm. and then they create. Uh, pen pals like LISA has between schools from different, uh, you know, Puerto Rico and the states. So kids, you know, so kids here from the state know why we're fighting in Puerto Rico and children from our country know why are the teachers and the children of the states fighting the same fight. So they get to know each other, they get to be in solidarity with each other, and they get to know that what we're going through, um, we're going to triumph and that what you're going through, you know, and so it's building relationship lasting you know it's it's not just a solidarity event it's just it's more than that it's a lasting um bond it's a long-term relationship that we need you know to construct what else should people know about what's going on in puerto rico and what's going to be happening in the next few weeks and months okay so we they should know that we are definitely going to a general assembly on the 15th of april that we're going to vote for a strike that we are proposing, we're going to propose a strike indefinitely for the time that we have to until they revoke this law and they guarantee that no charter schools will be implemented, that they stop the school closures, that we are going to take the case to court but we don't rely on the court case Mm -hmm. for justice. It has proven to not benefit the workers in history. So we are giving the biggest fight of our life and we are very energized and being here with so much, so much wonderful people, so many unionists, you know, union members that are working, that are fighting, that are organizing. The, the best gift that I take with me is to know that people all around the globe are organizing and are giving the same struggles 
that we're giving. We're all in this together. And ultimately, it's not an individual situation of a country. It's a global situation about the working class. So we're in it together, and we take to our country uh, renewed energies to fight for what is right and more than just defend public education to fight for the world that we want to build, a just world, an equitable world for the children of Puerto Rico. Anything to add? Well, people need to know that Puerto Rico is still struggling with the, the, the hurricane that we had, that um, we still have a lot of places that don't have electricity, that still ha are reconstructing their houses. So that is the main thing going on. Um, that teachers are getting ready to uh, strike pretty soon, pretty soon. We're going to organize and we're gonna, we are going to defend our public schools. That, that's the main thing, that we're united together and we're going to do whatever we have to take to defend our public schools and education for our kids because we're going to defend that. It's not even a thing about teachers. It's, it's about how Mr. said our legacy for the future, what we want to leave for our children, for our kids. Um, that's the main thing. That was Mercedes Martinez of the Federación de Maestros de Puerto Rico and Liza Fournier of UNITE. That's all we have this week for you. Thank you so much for sticking with us for five years of Belabored. You can always support us by sharing our podcast, by leaving us a review on iTunes, and of course by going to the Descent website, descentmagazine.org, and making a donation. Our sustaining members at just $5 a month get a pretty sweet Belabored tote bag. I'm just saying... Uh, thanks to everybody at Labor Notes once again for hosting us, for helping us talk to these wonderful people that we've brought you today and last week, and for an ongoing collaboration. Thank you to all of you again for listening. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.